listening to Connection Church's podcast. Great to have everybody here today. Welcome to Connection Church. My name is Joey Fennell, serve as one of the pastors here on staff, and it's great to be with you today. We start a new series called As One, and it is a sort of a marriage and family, godly man, godly woman, family series. Three weeks of that, so excited about it. Um, Get to talk to the men today, get excited men, right? All the wives are like, yeah, I'm glad we came. Uh Uh-huh. Hope you listen. I'll take notes for you. Yeah, all that's going to go on. But women, come back because we got a word for you next week. It's going to be really, really good. Excited about this series um, and and what God's going to do. God has already worked this morning. Somebody went from death to life this morning at the 9 a.m. service. We're excited about that. Awesome. Have a powerful time of prayer at the end of the service, and, and we'll do that again today. And I know that God is, is working in our families and excited about it. So we're going to be looking at the book of 1 Samuel. And 1 Samuel is a very interesting story about a family and a little bit of a non-traditional family, a man with two wives. Elephant in the room, I will deal with it, okay? So don't get hung up on that that little little tidbit of information there. Um, so we will deal with it. But 1 Samuel chapter 1, I'd like for you to turn there for me. Um, and we're going to read the first 11 verses this morning and um, grab a couple of verses today and, and spend some time here today and talk about Elkanah. And then we're going to talk about his wife, Hannah, uh, one of his wives, Hannah, but we're going to talk about the other one as well next week also. So turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 1 and let's read verses 1 through 11. There was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Zophite, from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, and Ephraimite. Don't y'all think we need to go back with those names? We need to bring them back. He had two wives. Yes, one was called Hannah, the other Panina. Panina had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Peninnah, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival, Panina, provoked her still till she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than 10 sons? Once they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And he made a vow saying, Lord, she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for today. We thank you for the cool air that we woke up with this morning. Thank you for sunshine, God. Thank you for the breath of life you give each one of us each and every day. God, I pray that today as we break open your word, that you will work in the men of this church, all of us men, God. Break us where we need to be broken, God. Prod around in our hearts today. Challenge us to become the men you want us to be, the men that reflect you and show who you are by the things that we do, the things that we say, and the attitudes that we have. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. So I saw an ad this weekend, and uh, you know when you're in the grocery store and you see those ads, those are the kind of ones that you read and get your attention, you may go, oh, I hope my kid doesn't read that one. You know, there's kind of some racy ads right there at, at child level, right by the candy bars, but all of it's right there in, in the grocery store. But I was actually looking online and saw this ad that popped up, and the ad said, men, let's be real men got my attention. Men, let's be real men. I was like, yes, all right. Let's talk about camo and guns and stuff. So I kept reading and the ad proceeded to promote a new testosterone pill. It's like, oh, Ray, here we go. So I kept reading, 
Because it said, if consume this pill promised to boost manliness, increased sex drive, muscles, and masculinity. I was like, all right, eat a pill, become the Hulk. Cool. With no green, whatever it meant. I, I, I don't know, but I kept kind of reading through and it was kind of frightening because it, it seems as though it speaks some truth that we've reduced masculinity in our society to sex drive and muscles. That, I don't know about you, but it's kind of ridiculous and, and far from the definition of masculinity as we look in scripture and what a godly man really is. Because the truth is there's much more to being a man than strong muscles and a good libido. Far more than cars and athletic ability all the meaningless things in our society used to define manhood. And I think a few things like honesty and strength and purity, humility and compassion are some great ways to measure masculinity and manhood. But kind of difficult for us, right, men? Kind of difficult for us to, to do those things. We would like to have those things, but it's difficult. Sometimes it's difficult to be honest, pure, have strength, humility, and compassion. Some of us say, you know, I am a Christian. I have a favorite Bible verse. I go to church. You know, we've heard it all. We say those things. And those things may be true, but it's a hard realization to come to this point and this question that I have for you this morning. Are you a Christian boy or are you a godly man? Are you a Christian boy or are you a godly man? Now, this, this sermon is not just for dads. It's not just for one group. It's basically for all dudes, okay? We'll just group us together in dudes. I don't get called dude much anymore unless, you know, it's degrading or just somebody is, I don't know. I, I don't know. I had my eyes open this week. On Friday, I went to eat lunch with my wife at Julia P. Bryant and I sat down and this little girl comes over to me and she says, at least introduces me to her, this is my husband. And she goes, oh, I thought that was your granddaddy here. <laughs> she has one less third grader and uh, ain't nothing for me to punch a third grader right in the mouth. Um, it's tough having old hair, but you know, we have to deal with that. And dads, it's not easy being a dad. We spend the, the first little while in life trying to teach our kids to, to talk and walk, and then we spend another part of their lives telling them to sit down and be quiet, right? Just kind of changes up. In the Webster's Dictionary, this is kind of interesting that the word father comes right before fatigued, and it comes right after fat-headed. Not really sure what that means either, but it's kind of sandwiched right between fatigued and fat-headed. You know, and society has done such a wonderful job of making the American father into a meathead. It's even referred to as Homer Simpson syndrome. There's a name for that when Disney makes shows and makes the dad out to be an idiot, an imbecile, the butt of all the jokes. We've come a long way from Andy Griffith, haven't we? We've come a long way from a man standing up in his family and leading it and being a spiritual leader not a dictator, but a man of God. Mark Twain once said, when I was a boy of 14, my father was so ignorant, I could hardly stand to have the old man around. When I got to be 21, I was astonished at how much the old man learned in seven years. That'll sink in in just a minute if you do the math. But let me fill you in on some background, the book of Samuel. He jumps right in here. It jumps right in and gets right in our face, but this is during the days when judges still ruled Israel, possibly during the closing years of Samson's life, and this is taking place. But answer the question of, are you a Christian boy or are you a godly man? I want us to look at four different characteristics of Elkanah's life. And that first characteristic is he set an example of worship and service. He sets an example of worship and service. See, he was concerned with worshiping God in verse 3. And this speaks more of him than stating his wealth or his physical appearance, his libido, his fame, his fortune, etc. But he did not go to worship alone. His family 
accompanied him. If you look all the way to verse 21, he led the way. He led the way to worship. He was not dragged to church. And man, let me just pause here and thank you for being here. Thank you so much for being here. Those of you especially who are with your family, thank you for being here. Because it's not that easy. Ladies who are dating right now, if you're having trouble getting your boyfriend to church, that's not going to change when you marry him. That will only get worse. Men who are being dragged to church, and it happens, it's kind of humorous. It's really humorous. It was, it was very easy when we were at the high school to kind of stand in one of the windows and watch the parking lot. It's a little bit more difficult here, but it still happens. And it's so funny to watch out there and you see people driving up and you can just assume what's going on in the car. You know, nothing's gone right at the house, right? And there's just that, we're not talking about when we're going to eat or where we're going to eat when we get out of church. We're not talking about that right now. And it just gets escalated, escalated. I can't believe we got to park over here in this nasty, non-paved parking lot over here by this shit. I have just nowhere for me to park. I get stuff all over my shoes. I got sand spurs by the time I get there. We get out of the car. Somebody says, good morning. You're like, hey, good morning. Welcome to church. We change it just like that, right? But we get dragged here for some men. And I challenge you men, stand up and be that leader. Be the one who, who brings your family to church. He trained his family to worship by supplying them with individual sacrifices, portions of the sacrifice. In that culture, they would bring a sacrifice to the altar. They would make sacrifices in worship. And he gave each of them a portion. He was the example. He set the example of how to worship. Men, if we set the example as to how to worship, our kids will follow that. Elkanah was that kind of father. The Bible says each year Elkanah would travel to Shiloh to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of heaven's armies at the tabernacle. Each year there were three special occasions, three special religious festivals held at the tabernacle. They would have to walk over 20 kilometers on foot through this blistering desert, and Elkanah never missed one. And after spending the whole weekend worshiping in the house of the Lord, he, he went to worship the Lord once more, it says in verse 19. So they've worshiped all weekend, and he has to have one more worship service. And I think it's so important for Elkanah to worship that he, it has to be important when he was at home. He would travel this far to worship. We can just assume how important worship was for him at home. And I challenge you men to think about that. How do your kids see you worshiping? It's what every child needs in a father. Dads, if you love God and love to worship him, your kids will too. The statistics are very astonishing because if you don't worship him, they won't either. Statistics tell us that families, when mom is a regular churchgoer but dad isn't, 37% of kids continue to go to worship sporadically when they grow up. On the other hand, in households where dads attend church regularly, 78% of the kids will still attend church when they grow up. And here's an interesting fact. And in families where dad attends church but mom doesn't, it actually goes up to 84%. Now, moms, don't be the sacrificial lamb and go, well, I'll stay home. Maybe it'll increase our church attendance later. No, I think that's what it means. I really point this even to in divorced families. Men who are being fathers to their kids and they see you going to church and they're going to church with you, it's going to increase. But kids watch the way we worship. So dads, let's be godly fathers so that our children can find a father in God. So important. So not only does it show the importance of worship, is that one of his characteristics, but he also loved his wife. He loved his wife. He, he loved Hannah, his wife, Husbands are to love their wives, according to Paul in the book of Ephesians. Through the love a husband has for his wife, the love for the children is revealed. Someone has said the best thing a father can do for his children is to be a good husband to their mother. And I think that's so, so important. And I, I have this theory that I use all the time in, in therapy with couples is that um, there's a husband, there's a wife, and both have relationships with God. Of course, this is with Christian couples, not with non-Christian couples. But they have to have this relationship with God. Individually, you have the husband's relationship with God and the wife's relationship with God. And then the relationship with each other. Now, this is my football goal approach. And everybody tries to put a little spindle down on the bottom of it saying, oh, okay, then that's our relationship with our kids. But I don't believe that. 
I believe if you have a relationship with God here and a relationship with God here and a relationship with each other, then your kids are going to benefit from those two relationships. Once we turn our attention to our kids specifically, then one of these relationships is going to be hindered. One of them may even fail because it's difficult for us to have three different relationships going on at the same time. Our kids benefit and reap the blessings from these two relationships being intact and growing and being nurtured. He loved Hannah even though she could do nothing. She could do nothing to deserve his love. If you remember in verse 5, it said the Lord had closed her womb. The Lord had closed her womb, so she, she suffered from all these different things. And, and this, is a, this whole story has been used in, in so many different commentaries. Um, this, this story came up even um, when I was working on my master's in counseling. It, this story came up as, as this example. If you read through it, there's theory that Hannah suffered from an eating disorder. That she suffered from depression. From infertility, she had it all, the whole gamut. All these things were possibly going on for her. So a lot had happened, and a lot was going on. And I want to have a, a couple from our church share part of their story right now. So Ethan and I met in 2009. I was coming to work at the concession stand at Bullock Academy, and I saw him when I was walking up, and I was like, okay, dibs, ladies, that uh, I'm going to get to know him tonight. And one of my friends was like, hey, I know him. So I was like, okay, well, can you help your friend out? And she was like, yeah, okay. So later that night, he comes up to me and she was like, hey, this is my friend Banks. And I was really shy, my face got really red and I couldn't even look at him. And she was like, um, you wanna get her number? And he was like, okay. So I got his number and I didn't even know his last name. I remember it was like Ethan dot 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 in my phone for the longest time. And we had been dating probably about five months at this point. And I remember I felt like maybe I was pregnant, that something was going on. So I took a test and sure enough found out that yes, I was pregnant. And of course I was so scared. We weren't married and we hadn't been dating that long. One day, him and I were riding in the car, and we were about to go get some dinner, and he just reached over and he grabbed my hand. He was like, you're pregnant, aren't you? And of course, I couldn't speak. I started crying, and he just held my hand really tight, and I knew right then that him and I were good. And better timing is all we need. Marriage started off uh, pretty rough, young couple. Um, we were doing a lot of learning um, at 19, 20 years old. Um, and it was hard for me uh, wanting to go do, you know, the things I had been doing, wanting to still go hunting and fishing and hang out with my friends all the time. Um, I had been attending Connection Church for a little while now, uh, coming on and off. And I decided that we should get plugged in and start attending more regular, become connected in the church more. Um, so we decided to join a connect group and uh, really didn't know what we were getting ourselves into. We really didn't talk that much. We probably listened more than we said anything, but we did learn a whole bunch and we got to get insight from other couples and just see what the whole marriage thing was like and you know, bringing Jesus into that and just being part of our church. Around a year, year and a half ago, um, we kind of hit a rough patch coming home every night to find Banks, you know, always down it seemed like, and I wasn't able to get much out of her. I had just um, started school for dental hygiene. Uh, my daughter had just started going to real school. She was entering pre-K. Ethan had just started working EMS, and he was gone a lot doing that. And I was having a couple of health problems here and there, and I think just all of that stuff compiling together just really hit me. And I think after just one thing after another, I just realized I couldn't handle it anymore, and I finally, I broke. And um, it was really scary because I didn't know that I could get to that point. I didn't know that I could be sad every single day. I didn't know that I could cry when I didn't even want to cry. And Ethan played a major role for me in this because I was scared. I didn't know what was wrong with me or if I'd ever get through it. And he really helped me. Um, 
He did everything for our family at that point. I knew it was my job and my role to, you know, step up and, and help comfort her and, and lead her through it. And with uh, with the help of Friends Connect Group, um, it was just a struggle that we, we got through and we're stronger now because of it. I feel like Ethan stepped up during this time because he knew as a husband that was one of his roles. And instead of him, you know, drifting away, he just got even closer to me and became more involved and he wasn't going to give up. And I'm so glad that he didn't because that's exactly what I needed. You know, the trials haven't gotten easier, but we've grown closer through all of them. And uh, through everything we've been through, you know, God's been, God's been right there uh, helping us along through all of it. So just like Elkanah loved his wife, Ethan and Banks' story is, is somewhat similar. There are times in our marriages when things aren't as good as they could be. I know that uh, in my own marriage, when there may be some times where, where Lisa's not doing as good as, as she wants to be, or I'm not doing as good as I want to be. And we've always been 100%, 100%. It's not 50-50. We both have to give 100%. There are times, and she, she made this statement to me. She says, I've only got 80 right now. I need you to give 120. We talk through it, communicate through it. And, and I could get angry and, and bitter and selfish during that time. And I'm not going to say that that's never happened because we do that as men sometimes. We do get selfish. But the Bible instructs, husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. He died for the church, and that's what Elkanah did. That was his attitude. He loved Hannah very much, and he showed it. There's so many ways that we could talk about how to show love for our wives, but I wanted to give you three simple steps, men, three simple things that I want you to take home with you today. And the first thing is the things that we do. The things that we do. That's how Elkanah showed his love. At dinner time, the Bible says, but to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her. And some of you be like, I don't need a double portion, so don't do that, husband, right? But during that time and that culture, that was a big deal. That's one of the things we may assume that she was struggling with eating, and it says from, in the scripture that she, she could not eat. It's such a small but significant act, but Elkanah loved his wife, and he wanted to show her in the simple acts of service. And husbands, we can do that. You can do the same for your wife. Boyfriends, you can do the same for your girlfriend. Young men who don't have girlfriends, start doing that now. Start cherishing ladies. Start cherishing them and serving them. Make the bed in the morning, men. No amens. Thought we might get a couple. Do the dishes. Don't leave your underwear on the floor anymore. Pick up your drawers, dude. Take her on a date from time to time. Have a date night. Buy her flowers every once in a while. Do the little things. Do the little things that work. Put down the flipping toilet seat. Just as a matter of help there. I love in my office when couples come in, the guy uses the restroom. I love trying to sneak back in there and just check it out, you know? I'm like, I know what y'all's problem is. All right, what is it? You left the toilet seat up. What? Yeah, you're, you're probably selfish and you want your way all the time. So, and your mama probably made, that way, made it that way for you, right? So it's very therapeutic, you know, to can figure out your marriage just by the toilet seat being up or down. Put it down, guys. Single men, practice this now. Learn how to do things. Mamas, teach your sons how to do stuff. That's one of the biggest things I spend time on is, is these guys who are still sitting around waiting on their mamas to do something for them so they marry somebody, thinking she's going to replace mama. Stop it. Get off your behind and do something. Now, I've gone to meddling. Let me get back to preaching. All right. <laughs> Tell you a little secret about us guys. We cherish the attaboys. Right, guys? Why is it that when we get home, there is not a marching band to greet us? Come on now, guys. Come with me. Come with me, right? Why is it when we get home, everything doesn't stop? 
and lights come on and, and like music plays and everybody stops and goes, oh, daddy's home, husband's home. Look at, oh, you must have worked so hard today. We cherish you and they roll out this carpet and we walk in and, you know, we're seated and they bring us stuff and fans are going. That's how we feel, ladies. That's really how, it would be nice to do that. So when I do the dishes, yeah, I'm slaving over the dishes and, and get them all done and go sit down and, and, or, or whatever's next. And, and Lisa says to me, thank you so much for doing the dishes. Oh, man, what a feeling. I want to grab the dishcloth, walk over, boom, spike the dishcloth, do a little touchdown dance. You know what I mean? The best one I could come up with is freaky and freaked everybody out just then, but that, that's exciting for us. That's all we need is a little pat on the back. Makes us feel so good, but we love those attaboys. So the things that we do are so important. The second thing, the things that we say. Men, the things that we say. Elkanah also showed love through words. During the meal in verse 8, he says, her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Why are you depressed? Don't I mean more to you than 10 sons? Gosh, he was so close to getting it right. Typical man, right? I know these things are wrong, but look, you got me, <laughs> right? I know you ladies, your husband never does anything like that. But the, I mean, for the people watching online later, probably would be for them who have selfish husbands and think that the world revolves around us. But I know none of that affects us in here. So we'll talk about everybody else for just a minute, right? He saw his wife was hurting and he used words to encourage her and he almost got it right. And so many of us men, we almost get it right so many times, but let's really work and be diligent on getting it right and meeting our wives where they are, meeting our girlfriends where they are, cherishing them, doting over them, laying down our, lives for them, our lives for them. That's what we ought to do. Communication is such a key in marriage to be together and to talk to each other. You know, men use about 1,200 words per day. And women use about 12,000 words per day with gusts up to 20,000, okay? <laughs> Few more here and there, but that's just, that's just how it is. We communicate differently. So when my wife says to me, you know, we're gonna go out to eat with so-and-so this weekend, I hope that's okay and looking forward to that. At that point, all I need to know is where and what time and maybe what to wear, but that's not that important either, right? So when she begins to talk about, well, you know, you remember we went out the last time she had that dress on. I really liked the dress and I wanted to go try to find one similar to that because I like the way it fit her. And I think it would fit me kind of the same way if, you know, hoping it wouldn't make my butt too big. And all that stuff comes out and I, the fog has descended over my eyes because I don't care. I don't care about any of that. That doesn't mean I don't care about her. I just don't use that many words. So in order for us to work towards each other, I have to listen more. I have to focus on listening more and she needs to learn how to talk less from time to time because we're working towards each other. But it's not about not caring or being flippant. It's just the fact of the way God made us because men communicate to relay information and women communicate to relate to each other. Women process. They use more words than we do, guys. Amen? I mean, it's just a fact, right? A few amens and a couple of gut punches. All right. So on the other part of that, there's also the way we say things. The way we say things. There's no room at all for name-calling in our relationships. I'm blown away by this, and I deal with so many couples where anger is such a part of it. But in every one of them, there's one thing that's always the same. When we fight in marriage, we are in the seventh grade. We all go back to the seventh grade. We slam doors, we yell things, we talk about each other's mama. All that happens in our marriage, right? Why is that? That's what we go back to. So not only are we acting like seventh graders, but we are processing information and thinking like seventh graders. That's dangerous right? That is very dangerous in marriage to do that. But anger is a, is a healthy portion of our marriages and fighting is a healthy portion of marriages, but it must be done fairly and it must be done in love because fighting and going through things and having tension in marriage increases all types of intimacy and passion for each other. And it's part of who we are. 
So not only the things we do, the things we say, but who do we portray? Who do you portray in your marriage? Let's get really down to the nitty gritty here and talk about this. Men, who do you look like? Who do you look like in your marriage? When people are around you, who would they mistake you for? Who would they mistake you for in your marriage? Men, love your wife as Christ loved the church and laid his life down for her. Because a marriage between man and a woman represents Christ and the church. The unconditional love, the devotion, the adoration, the sacrifice, the joining together. It represents how much Jesus Christ loved us, his body, his church, his bride. Our neighbors should be able to look at our marriages and see Jesus' love in them. Our wives should be able to look at us men and see Jesus laying down his life for them. It literally all points back to Jesus. Husbands, let's be like Elkanah and love our wives with the things that we do, the things that we say, and who we portray. Now, I don't want to pat Elkanah on the back here too much because he does have two wives. We have to address the elephant in the room, right? This is culturally accepted. Polygamy was culturally accepted in the Old Testament. But if you read verse after verse, story after story in the Old Testament, it never ends well. It always ends with somebody crying if you really get technical about it. It never works. It's never a good thing. Even in this situation, it led to jealousy and hatred and strife. These two women were pitted against each other. Men, your wife needs to know that she is the only woman in the world for you. She shouldn't have to compete with memories of ex-girlfriends or images on a computer, that she is the only woman for you. That's one part of this example. The other part is, as, as Elkanah, if we look at him as a Christ-like figure, he is loving Hannah unconditionally. She can do nothing culturally to bring his love towards her or to earn it. She cannot have kids. She's down. She's somewhat miserable. And we'll look at that, the, more, the details of that next week. There's nothing she can do to earn his love. And he's continually drawn to her, continually drawn to her over and over. Like Jesus is to us. There's nothing we can do to earn his love. There's nothing we can do to earn his grace. But over and over he gives it to us. So men, it's time. It's time to man up and love your wife. It's time to man up and love your wife, men, to step up and respect women, not exploit them. Young men in school, it's time to stand up and take up for girls in the classrooms, in the hallways, in the cafeterias of our schools. When a girl's getting checked out, step in and change that conversation. Don't let the, the crass, acceptable lack of a better quote, locker room talk, be accepted because that's crap. It's not appropriate. So start now, young men. Stand up for the ladies in your life, for your sisters, for your friends, for your mamas, for those who are around you. He also cooperated with rearing his kids. He cooperated with raising a child. Hannah prayed to God for a son and promised to devote him to service to him if her prayer were answered. So Elkanah concurred with her decision and allowed his son Samuel to be given to Eli, the priest. All right, we're not going to bring this back, okay? So when you leave here, please take your kids with you out of Connection Kids. Don't leave and go, I think I'm going to commit my child to the church and we're going to Longhorn. Don't do that, Okay. That's not the point of this. We've used this, this text has been used through the years traditionally and in the dedication of children. And in the story today, once, the, once Jesus comes and he fulfills the law, the way we interpret this is, is presenting your child and saying, as a family, as a couple, as a single mom, a single dad, whoever it may be, I'm committing to raise my child through the church and, and through God's graces and teaching the word to him or her. That's what this means, and it's, it's so special and so sacred. But the responsibility God gives to fathers is great. 
Ephesians chapter 6, Paul even says that, tells them that they must bring up their children the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But sadly, many of us fathers, even Christian fathers, fail to do this and fail to take the responsibility to stand up, stand in the gap, and be that godly father to their kids. Men, we do not help with the kids. We do not babysit our kids. We are fathers to our children. Divorced men, you do not visit your kids. We don't even use the term visitation anymore when it comes to the court system. You don't visit your kids. You parent them all the time, even when it's not your time. You're always a father. God has blessed you with those children, so do what is right. Find things to do with your kids. Enjoy the time you have with them. Remember the football goal. Relationship with God, relationship with each other. What do the blessings look like? Without over-prioritizing, without spending all your time with the kids and neglecting these two relationships, how do you balance that in your own life? I love the fact that my, my oldest daughter has gone off to college and it still gets a little catch in my throat when I say that. She's been gone, this is her first semester away and, and doing really well at school. But uh, a few years ago, she, she's been dancing for 15 years and during one of those years, they did this um, partnering class. And she said, Dad, I'd like you to come and, and be my partner. Some dads are gonna be a part of this and y'all are gonna be in the recital with us. I was like, oh, that's a great idea. That was what was out loud, but I didn't know what this was gonna entail. But it turned out to be really a, a, a fun time where we were able to spend time together because I don't, I mean, I like to dance, but not, I'm just, I don't, I don't look good in a tutu. I'll just put it that way, okay? She's a ballerina, I'm not. And the things that ballerina men wear, not going there at all. So erase that image, let's keep going, all right? So, but we enjoy doing that. My, my son, he, he loves ball, I'm passionate about baseball, love playing um, myself. So, so we do a lot of travel ball and I love watching him play. And, and sometimes in the, even the evenings, I'll come home and he wants me to throw. And, and I fail at that a lot of times because I, that's the last thing I want to do after working. I'm looking for the band. They're not there, but my son wants to throw. And we have to dig deep to do those things, even in our fatigue from working. Um, my middle daughter, she's an athlete too. I coach her fast pitch team. And we have, a, we have a wonderful time, spend a lot of time together doing that sort of thing. But as a coach and father, there's those gray areas that we have to fix sometimes. But, but now we're doing even something more special. She, she's wanting me to do a sprint triathlon with her. Yeah, everybody's looking at me like, you're gonna, you're gonna die. And um, so... Sprint triathlons, you know, not as long as a regular triathlon, but still as deadly. And um, so she had said, you know, we had talked about it. She goes, I really want you to do this with me. I want you to, you know, be around. We've always talked about it. I want you to be around and walk me down the aisle. And I'm thinking after working out a little bit, I may, I may not make it to your wedding. I may not make it to Christmas, you know, if we keep this up. But we run a couple of days a week, running like two and a half miles. And I can, I mean, I can keep up with her to the end of the driveway. And then she kind of goes off. And, um, and there's not a lot of time together because I can't talk, you know. I mean, I'm just working on breathing and keeping that pace. And I have two goals to finish and not die and not in that particular order. But it's just, oh, my goodness, I cannot. I don't know. I don't, I've never, you've heard me talk about running before. I don't understand it. I don't understand euphoria, you know. Um, I have an out-of-body experience, but it's not euphoria at all. It's just called dissociation to avoid pain. Um, but we, we find these things to do together and we have a good time doing them. But, but the other thing I wanted to challenge you men with is dads, we need to teach our kids what losing is about. We need to teach our kids the difference in winning and losing because I meet with families all the time complaining about their kids being victims because we haven't taught them to be victors. We haven't taught them really about the victory of Jesus Christ and what he did for us. And, and there are winners and losers in life. When you don't get the job, you lose, right? Not everybody gets the job. When they're handing out promotions, not everybody gets the promotion. You may have not done very well, you lose. I mean, that's just a fact of life. And I hate losing more than I like winning. I hate to lose. But I think it's so important, men, we can teach that so well because we're so competitive, right? I, I can guarantee if we walked out in the atrium after this service and I just tapped one of you on the shoulder, 
and I said, I'll race you to the end of the hallway, you would take me up on it, not even knowing me, right? You'd be like, oh, it's on right here, let's go. You'd be, we'd just take off right, right out the back door. And at the end of it, somebody would turn around and be talking smack. See, I told you I had you, uh-huh. Man, you, you gotta jump on me, let's do it again. And we'd go back the other way. That's just who we are as men, we're competitive. Let's teach that healthy way to compete with our kids. It's so important in life because not everybody gets a trophy. They don't. They might in Little League, but they don't in life. So let's teach that important thing. The last characteristic that Elkanah had was he was possessed by God. He was possessed by God. The, the name Elkanah means God has possessed. He was the man he was, the husband he was, the father he was, because he was possessed by God. He had given himself to God. And that's where his success came from because he thought all these things were important, being possessed by God. His name even meant it. And I hope you know this, but we have the unbelievable privilege of having, to me, the most amazing pastor on earth to be pastoring this church in Brandon Williams. Unbelievable guy. And I, I think he's God-possessed. There's no, no doubt about that to me. He is the most passionate and um, empathetic person I think I've ever been around in my life. And he loves this congregation, this church, more than anything in the world. I mean, absolutely loves what he does. And it's a really huge thing. And if you realize, um, this past Thursday, we celebrated eight years. Eight-year anniversary for Connection Church. Is that amazing? Eight years? And... The crazy thing is that in eight years, we've gone from seven people in a pond house to having our own facility, two campuses with a third that's about to launch the first of the year in Dublin. Crazy. And all that, those launches have happened in the last year and a half or so. So it's a lot that's gone on. One of the craziest things about Brandon, though, is in eight years, he's never stopped. He's never taken a break. And if you know Brandon Williams, he is um, a little stubborn, little stubborn, okay? I'm not going to share anything he wouldn't want me to share, but he is stubborn as a mule when it comes to taking time off. I mean, really taking time off. Just not preaching is not time off because it's constantly going. Brandon's not one to sit around and not do anything. But that's a very, very important thing. So I'm going to let you, uh, I'm going to let him actually just tell you a couple things right now. Hey church, I want to share a little of what's been going on in my life lately. We celebrated our eight-year anniversary at the church this week on November 17th. In that eight years, we've seen God do more than we could have ever imagined. It's truly been a remarkable journey and I truly believe the best is yet to come. However, the last eight years has taken a heavy toll on me personally. Over the last two to three years, I've experienced extreme fatigue, bouts of depression, and other medical issues. In fact, I've been diagnosed with a virus, I'm not contagious by the way, that is known to cause many of the symptoms that I've had. Unfortunately, there's really no medical cure for this virus and the only way to heal from it is to get rest. That means in many ways, I'm going to have to shut my body down for a while. I said for a while, not for good. So here's what it looks like. I won't be preaching for the next few weeks. I'll also have a modified schedule at the office during that period of time. This is a difficult time for me because I've never wanted to let you down. In a way, I feel like I'm leaving my fellow soldiers in the trenches to fight the battle, and that hurts me deeply. Yet I know that this is necessary for me to be the person God wants me to be for my family and for you. I want to be healthy so that I can lead well in all areas of my life. I don't expect everyone to understand, but I do hope you all know that I've never held anything back from you, and I'm not going to start now. I feel like there are two options for us moving forward. The first is to shrink back in fear and lose the vision that God's given us. In reality, that's not an option and it's completely irrational and unnecessary. The second option is to rally behind the vision and keep pressing forward. This is what I expect to see happen. I expect that God will continue to save people. I expect that God will continue to change people's hearts. I expect that God will continue to work in marriages. I expect that people will be healed emotionally, spiritually, and physically. I expect that God will continue to use you to do all of these things. 
And I expect you to be here because I expect God's Spirit will be here too. This is bigger than one person and not dependent upon my gifting, but dependent upon the work of the Holy Spirit. I fully expect to be back stronger and more on fire than ever before. I'm already excited about that day, but I don't want to look past all the incredible things God is going to do in our presence over the next few weeks, and I don't want you to miss it, heart and soul. I can't wait for you to hear the rest of this story that's actually unfolding as we speak. But all the things that have led up to this, God has been, I mean, just, it's like a battering ram. God was making things so obvious and, and paving the way for so many things to make this happen. So it's such a privilege and an honor for us as a church to be able to rally behind Brandon and Susan and the boys and give them a break. Because the break that comes for Brandon is not one that he's going to be, you know, um, getting fanned by anybody and sitting around. I promise you that. But, but it's taking a break from, from just this, the constant, the constant of everything to be able to just let God speak. And to let God continue to cast vision for him so he can cast vision for this church. That's what's going to be happening. I'm so excited about that. He didn't mention the, the name of the virus. It's Epstein-Barr. Some of you probably have heard of that. It's, it's really the underlying virus around mono. And Brandon's really been carrying this for over a year um, and basically walking around with this and not being able to, to go full force. And it's just worn him down. So we ask that you pray for them, pray for their family during this time. You know, they're not you're going to disappear or anything like You're probably going to see them around. Um, just give them encouragement. Uh, again, such a privilege to be able to do this. Every pastor needs to do this. Every pastor needs time away to be able to breathe and to pray and allow God to speak. And I know that, that Brandon, just like Elkanah, is a possessed man, which takes us back to the question. It takes us back to the question of, are you a Christian boy, men, or are you a godly man? Are you a Christian boy or are you a godly man? Do you say that God is number one? Or do you actually love God more than your girlfriend or your wife? Can you recite Bible verses or do you live them out? Are you going to church or are you being the church? In relationships, are you merely respecting her purity or are you protecting her purity? Are you leading her closer to yourself or are you leading her closer to God? Do you say, I'm praying for you? Or are you praying with her? Do people see Jesus in you? So answering yes to the first questions is good, but those are religious questions. They're kind of like rules or even laws to follow, a checklist, I read my Bible, I prayed, I learned a Bible verse. But Jesus came to fulfill the law. He came to fulfill the law. Laws don't make people love. Laws do not make people love. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Jesus raised it to the next level. He raised the bar to the next level. See, when the personal, intimate relationship with God comes into play, law and religion are not only fulfilled, but they're raised to the next level. They're raised to the next level. So you may be a Christian boy who fulfills the religious question, and that's good, but a godly man raises it to the next level. A godly man raises it to the next level. So men, you will love God more than anyone else. Men, you will live God's word out. You will be the church. You will protect her purity. You will lead her closer to God. You will pray with her. And people will see Jesus in you. That's the challenge today. That's what I want to leave you with today. And you may be sitting here going, well, I'd like to do all that, but I, I don't even know this Jesus. I've been sitting here week after week after week fighting it off. Because I don't want to give in to that wuss stuff, you may even say. But it takes more of a man to stand up and love his wife than one who stand up to his wife. 
So stand up in your family. Stand up, men, and, and say, I'm going to change this in my family. And for the first time today, you may be here saying, I need to do that. I need to start it right here with a relationship with God. And we want you to do that. And we want to celebrate that with you. So if you're here today and you want to, to walk down that path and say, I need a relationship with Jesus Christ, and you need to do that today, we just ask you to lift your hand right where you are. Amen. 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 Anybody else? Thank you so much. Anybody else? Got all afternoon. We don't have evening worship, so we got all day. Anybody else? All right, we're going to do something a little more awkward here. All right, so just bear with me. All dudes, if you're a dude, hard to hide it, right? I'm going to ask you just to stand up right where you are. If you would, stand up right where you are. If you're able to do that. If you're not able to do that, I understand. We're going to do something a little more awkward. We did this at 9, and it's a really, really powerful time. But I'm going to ask you, man, I'm going to ask you to come to the altar if you're able. Come to the altar and, and kneel at the altar, and we're going to have a time of prayer for you. So come on down, if you will, if you're able. Maybe if you're able to get down and get back up, according to how you want to posture yourself down here, I understand that. So men, come on down, and we're going to have a, a special time of prayer. And what I'm going to ask is for everyone else, wives and sisters and mamas and grandmamas, I'm going to ask you to come down behind them. And I'm going to ask you to pray over them. You don't have to find the one you were with. So, but come on down. I just want you to gather around them. Everybody touching somebody else. And we're going to have a time of prayer as we close this time. And Lydia's going to sing during this time as we pray. As we think back through the things that, that God has challenged us with today, and I'm, I'm right here with you, man. Right here with you. That we love God more than anybody else. Make that our priority, that we live God's word out, that we are the church, protecting purity, doing all the things that we talked about. So I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer. I want you to continue to pray as Lydia sings, and we'll close. God, we thank you for this morning. We know that we're running a little bit, little bit over, but God, we know that your spirit is moving. It's evident by the things that have already gone on today. And God, I pray for these men. I pray for myself. I pray for husbands. I pray for boyfriends. I pray for dads, for granddads. I pray for single dads, for single men, for young men, boyfriends, all the males in this room. God, I pray for them. I pray, God, that we make a commitment today to, to change the things within us because you want to change them. For us to take that step and invite you in to, to change the things that are keeping us from being who you want us to be. So they change our families and they change our, our church and our community. They go on to change this world. It's a powerful force that's at your altar this morning, God. So God, we love you and we thank you. Hear us as we continue to pray.